Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. As an actor, Kate Mulvaney has played lead roles with several major Australian theatre companies, as well as appearing on TV and in film. As a writer, her plays include The Web, Blood and Bone, winner of Naked Theatre Company's Right Now Award, and The Danger Age, which was shortlisted for the STC's Patrick White Playwrights Award. But today, we're here to talk about The Seed, commissioned by Belvoir after Kate won the 2004 Philip Parsons Young Playwrights Award. She starred in the first production in 2007, which ran in Belvoir's downstairs theatre, before transferring upstairs. Kate continued on in the role of Rose, and the production went on a national tour. Kate has recently developed The Seed into a feature screenplay. Meet Rose Maloney. Her dad Danny went to Vietnam. Her grandfather, Brian, is an ex-IRA. Today is their collective birthday. From this intimate reunion, the seed opens itself up over and over again until a silent family battle becomes a national story about finding new life amongst the rubble of old wars. This play has a very special kind of honesty and humour to it, which sorts the great lies we buy into from the reality we live through. Kate, thanks for talking to us about your play, The Seed. Before it made it onto the stage, the story had evolved several times over. It is autobiographical, so the characters evolve from real life, but the story's form evolved too. You were originally going to write it as a novel, but partway through your laptop was stolen, and the story was shelved until Lynn Wallace, director of Belvoir's B-Sharp program at the time, asked you to think big. You chose to return to this intimate story about a family's confrontation with hard truths that ultimately bring them together in ways that they no longer thought possible. Why did you come back to this story? I lost the plot by making it too big. The true story, the true seed of the seed, I found needed to be in a very small pot. So you concentrated it, essentially. I concentrated it very, very much. How did you find the translation from what was to be a novel (laughs) into a play, two literary forms? They obviously have different conventions. What happened in that process? Well, I had to go very deep. Uh, Not that, you know, novels don't, but I had to go very much into the hearts of the characters. And that was my starting point was who are these three people that I'm throwing into a room together? Do they want to be there together? In a way, by restricting them, it freed them. Right. In the original text and and in the novel, by having them kind of cross continents and cross times and everything, I I lost them. They They were on a very long lead, but it was nice to be able to keep them on a very short lead and let them just bite and go at each other and love one another as well. So how much truth is there in this fiction? <laughs> I always say about the seed, the stuff that you think is fake is the real stuff <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the stuff you think is real is totally made up. The story is, in terms of Danny's story and Rose's story, 99% true. Brian, the character of Brian, who was based on my real-life grandfather who died many years ago, I don't know. I I thought I was making it all up. I thought he was a fairy tale. And I found out after I'd written it that I was actually probably closest to him in terms of getting the story right. I don't know. Maybe the ghost of him was sitting behind me going, write that, write that. (laughs) 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 Well, I 
guess there's always that interesting idea of going back to the homeland and feeling at home there and and there's something about spirits and family and Definitely. some kind of transference of more than just genetics. Strangely enough, that's where the seed started out was when I did return to the homeland. I returned to Nottingham where my father came from, where my grandfather moved to, where I was conceived in Sherwood Forest. Hmm. And I returned there and had a very, very crazy couple of weeks there, um, which I again reduced down to this one night in this family's life. And in fact, the grandfather character of Brian was more based on my grandmother, Mama, who makes, she's like this unseen presence in the play, I guess. And that gave me my story. It was something about the ghosts and the spirits and the shadows and the cobwebs in her life that really intrigued me and, and piqued my interest, not just as a granddaughter, but as a, as a writer. You've said that you used your family as the blueprint for this play. So I wanted to ask you, how did this influence the way in which these characters were realised on the page and what separates them from the reality of your own story? What I was saying about the characters, particularly the Danny character, I was putting words into the mouth of my dad, the words that I wanted him to say, the questions I wanted to ask him that were too hard in real life, I put on the page and hoped so much that the answers I was giving my character were right and thankfully they turned out to be right. It was really tricky. Also to write for a character that doesn't speak. Yeah. Danny is our really our lead character and he's a character that does not speak. He just mm. sits there and simmers and that that was very close to real life but it was also something I wanted to crack and I'm glad that when he does burst in the play I, I ended up being astute enough to give my dad the right words. In terms of Brian, it was like he just flowed out of me so easily. His mm. his rhythms and his Irishness. And I've ne- I'd never been to Ireland when I started writing the play. I'd never been to his homeland of Dublin. I'd never, I didn't have any concept of him. I just knew I wanted him to be a wicked little leprechaun. And the character of Rose was the most difficult character of all. She took a long time, a mm. very long time to find because she was me. Mm. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to put myself on the stage. I thought that was really self-indulgent. I ended up playing her and I didn't want to play her either. I was my own fifth choice for the role. (laughs) It wasn't until Ian Sinclair, who who was dramaturg and director on the final product, he said, she's really boring. She's a really boring character. I don't want to follow her. I don't care about her. Go home and would you, for God's sake, write her something that makes us feel for her. And I went home and I wrote that monologue the baby monologue it's called, the pregnant woman monologue, some Mm. people call it, and took it in and handed it over very shakily and he said, don't touch a word, that's her. And from there things got a lot easier for her. And also she jigsawed together much better with the other characters. How does it change the nature of the work in the way that it's received by its audience to see it performed by not only the writer but the person it's based upon? I think they love the voyeuristic feel of it. Well, they don't love. It's a horrible thing. <laughs> they appreciate that they're voyeurs, that that woman standing in front of them does have that scar and she does have those issues. Yeah. But that said, there's a reason that she's not Kate, mm. that she's Rose, and that's because she's not me. She's a very different personality to me and, and I'm an actor. I don't want to get up there and play myself. So yeah. she's this weird portal where the audience are voyeurs to her and she's their eyes and ears. Yeah. It's all very meta. It's very meta. I didn't mean to make it meta. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> That'll be my, my biography name. I didn't mean to make it meta. <laughs> <Catch phrase. laughs> 
let's talk about Brian. Mm. He claims to be an ex-member of the IRA, <laughs> yeah. an Irish Catholic living in Nottingham. How does Brian receive his long-lost family after all this time? I think he's so excited. <laughs> I think he's absolutely quivering with nerves. I don't think he has anyone in the world, which, you know, we do discover later in the play. But he's so used to playing his part of the Irish Catholic father and the IRA soldier. Deep, 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 deep down, if you mind him, he'd be caramel inside, but outside he is this hard shell. But when we find out the truth about him, it, I think the caramel kind of spills out a little bit and we see the old man inside. Yeah. Yeah. Danny says at one point he's a story, well, he says of Robin Hood, he's a story that's been added to and embellished by people who want to believe in some sort of hero, some sort of martyr. Brian Maloney and Guy Fawkes and Robin Hood and his Merry Men are all the same. You're all fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Is Danny right, do you think? Is that a pretty good summation of Brian? Definitely. And there are breadcrumb moments through the play, some that people pick up on and some that people don't, that tell us how much of a liar Brian is, whether it be him swimming from Ireland to England, which is everyone laughs and go, that's a bit of Blarney. Mm. But there's the Semtex track through the play where he talks about Semtex and there's no way he could have known about Semtex in the year that he, he did. Yeah. He's... Sweet. He's the man with the lollies. He's like, come closer, come closer, come closer. And he's also got a dagger. The moment you're in stabbing range, he stabs. Mm. And then you run away and then he does it all again and it's his trick. Mm. And that's his life. That's kind of a, a metaphor for what he is in this world. He's not the man with the lollies and he's not the murderer. He's one or the other. Mm. We don't know. Let's talk about Danny then. Yeah. He's a Vietnam veteran. Mm-hmm an Englishman who fought for Australia in the Vietnam War, and you've been quoted as saying that the real man, your father, by the same name, Mm -hmm. has post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. A lot of Vietnam veterans do. A lot of war veterans do. You said, we didn't have a word for it back then, but it was heartbreaking because he was sad and angry and I didn't know why. Yeah. What did you discover about him in writing the character of Danny? That he had a story that all... Vietnam veterans and their children and their wives and their families and war veterans all have a story, but they're very stoic and encouraged to be stoic and are encouraged to, at least with the Vietnam veterans, shut up because there was so much very dark politics going on behind that war. Mm. I grew up thinking Vietnam veteran was a dirty word. Why do you think that was a dirty word? They weren't allowed to march at the Anzac Day Parade. They Mm. weren't allowed in an RSL club. They hadn't been officially welcomed back by the Australian government. They were absolutely swept under the carpet, and so were we all. There was no therapy available, especially in a country town. We didn't have that kind of access to anything. It was just you got through it with with beer and violence sometimes. So for a man who was already displaced, like my father, he was further displaced and he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go back to Nottingham Mm. because he was very changed by the war and he didn't really feel like he wanted to be in Australia because... They wouldn't even give him citizenship when he got back. So where do you go? Where do you go? Where did he belong? Yeah, and that's what I was trying to explore. Where does my dad belong in it all? But also in this play, his father has a similar attitude to him and he says, I'm a soldier, I never gave up my cause, my pride. Mm. You're full of poison while we're full of pride. We're all courage and you're all, and Danny says softly, chemicals. Mm. That's massively personal as opposed to, en masse from a country. Yeah, it does feel personal because none of them spoke. I don't think the vets really shared 
what ended up being so common, this common thread between them all, they kept him here. Mm. And I think he wants to go back and question his soldier father and go, how did you deal with this dad? Mm. My dad, who I haven't seen for all these years, I'm not coping. I don't think I'm going to last. I don't think I can get through this. How do you do it? How do you remain so strong, dad? Mm. Duh. You know, I think that's what he wants to ask. He doesn't want Rose coming along because that means he can't ask it because he doesn't want to let on to her that this is happening to this extent. And, yeah, he is all chemicals. He made the mistake of breathing in Mm. Vietnam and passed on an illness to his child and to his wife. Imagine the guilt of that, of going not only did you fight in a war that no one, that everyone's angry about and you've been rejected by your father for fighting in that war and you've been rejected by the country that sent you to that war, but now your daughter is born and she's possibly going to die. Mm. And then they save her and then, of course, later in life you find out she can't have children because of this thing. Um, The guilt just keeps, keeps, keeps growing and it's going to explode. It has to explode. It's no wonder to feel guilt about something that you didn't have a hand in to begin with and then can't control and then can't actually peel back to a point where you can say, next time no, I'll do something different. That's right. And also to have that daughter asking where did this come from? Where did this come from? Demanding. She needs someone to blame. Mm. And if he doesn't start talking, she is going to blame him. But fortunately, since the play, and I'm hoping because of it in a way, Dad, uh, I think I've said somewhere he lifted his head and that makes all the difference to me as a, as a daughter. Let's talk about Rose then. Mm-hmm. How does she feel about him? I think she's intrigued by him. And, of course, she knows that her illness has come from him, but she instinctively knows that this man has something to tell her. I feel like she's kind of been abandoned by a man that's been there her whole life um, and yet has never been there. She's on antidepressants. She's found out she can't have children ever. She's been left by her partner because of that. She's a kleptomaniac. She's in self-destruction mode, but very much like a grandfather, puts on this wonderful facade of everything's okay. I think she knows, much like Danny, that she's about to explode. And it's a triangle of everyone chasing each other's tails and everyone wooing each other. Rose wants Danny's story. Danny wants Brian's story. Brian wants Rose. Mm. I think it would be much easier if Rose was just removed from the equation. It would just be Danny and Brian. But uh, she has to be the thorn, a very demure thorn. My favourite thing about Rose is how she's encouraged by her grandfather to use that dark side, use Mm. that. The the woman who wants to punch pregnant women and cut cut off men's cocks and all that, use it. Mm. You're perfect for this family. This is fantastic. And that for the first time all of these dark thoughts and demons are being exalted by this wonderful man who's offering her a whole other future. Yeah. And um, I love that about her, that she's got that in her. Yeah. Because she does present as the sweet survivor. Yes, And I she think does. she's a bit sick of being the sweet survivor. Yeah. She needs some kind of release. Yeah, she does. Which is, and, it, you know, it, it comes about by stealing. Mm. She does steal things. I don't. I have to say. <laughs> well, this is uh, where these things overlap? I know. <laughs> After the play came out, people started <laughs> kind of going, are you, are you stealing? Do you really do that? And I said, no, that's part of that 1% that's not true. She's stealing um, quite specific things too, though. Um, yeah. Danny says 
there's sausages and yeah. there's those kinds of things, but there's nappy wipes and baby food. Yeah, yeah. She's she's trying to provide for this child that doesn't exist. Yeah. Which is her. Yeah. She's she says at one stage I've been disemboweled and it's like I always imagine Rose when she's stealing stuff. She's just feeling she's mentioned it's she's filling this hole in her with stuff that mm. happens to, you know, be this the part of her that would normally hold a baby. Especially on stage you can feel the audience they laugh, but a lot of them are pissed off because they're like, oh, we thought you were the sane one. Mm. And she's not. You know, yeah. She's she's the most lost out of those three because they know what their story is. Brian knows he's a liar. Mm. Yeah. Danny knows he's a Vietnam veteran soldier that's really fucked up. Rose doesn't know anything about any of that yeah. and therefore she doesn't know anything about herself. Is that why you decided they would all have the same birthday? Does that help to... Yeah, it gets questioned so much, but in fact, uh, that's what we went back for in the you know in real life. My dad went back because he shared his birthday with his his mum, right. and then there was someone else in the room that had the same birthday too from the family. And I thought, wasn't that fascinating? Just Irish Catholic. <laughs> Just Irish. Yeah, <laughs> There's so many of them. The chances are good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about their cultural backgrounds. Why do they need to be from? different sides of the world. What, what, how does that change the story? Well, it was true life. Yeah. It was absolutely real. My dad did move from Nottingham. He moved to country Western Australia. The greatest thing about it, though, is this sense of no one belonging where they've chosen to be. Yeah. The theme of the play is really where we belong. Mm. And not one of those characters belongs anywhere in this world. And yet they all belong somehow with each other at that moment in that room. Yeah. I wanted to talk about silence, the silence each character has kept about their own past mm-hmm. and about their feelings and their hopes. It's partly self-imposed, but there's a strong element of societal pressure involved. Mm-hmm. And whether that's politically charged or dictated by social mores, the result is the same. Silence is a roadblock to their acceptance of the past and it stymies their healing process. At what point do you think stoicism becomes debilitating? Immediately. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference, of course, between being stoic and being contemplative and and just thinking things through, of course. But I think these characters are far beyond that. With Danny in particular, it was tough to write that character because he's so silent. And he's been taught that by society, by government, by military. And that's, of course, what Rose has to deal with. She's been taught that. She's asked around medical practitioners, I imagine, well, I know she has, (laughs) asked around medical practitioners, why, what's wrong with me? How did this happen? What am I? And being told, we don't have that information. We don't have it. Yeah. She's walking around with chemical warfare in her body and chemical warfare that just has not been released. The information on it just hasn't been released. There are clinical tests and everything, but no government has come forward. The US government has admitted a few things. Mm. But Australian government hasn't. So she's walking around with military secrets inside her that she'd, she can't even unlock herself. Mm. So she's forced into silence. Danny chooses his silence. Rose is forced into silence. And Brian's silence is covered by this wonderful bubbling brook of everything. I don't think even he's aware of his silence. He's convinced himself so much that he is all that, that uh, he's not aware that he's, he's actually stunted his realness. What I find really interesting about Brian's silence is that he doesn't break it. Danny breaks it for him. Yeah. And he says, all those IRA meetings that kept you away from us all those years were just drunken nights at the pub, weren't they? All that money spent on the cause was really money spent at the bookies, wasn't it, Dar? 
you've never fought a battle in your whole life, have you, old man? Yeah, have you, old man? <laughs> First time he calls him an old man too. And in that moment, Danny not only realizes that Brian has concocted a series of fantasies about himself, but just as importantly, he's not the man that Danny thought he was, and this frees Danny. Yeah. My favourite silence from Brian is when he's asked who Mickey McEvitt is and he can't answer. It's the first moment that this man falls silent, except after Rose's admission that she can't have children, but it's the first time that he is absolutely lost for words to his son. And that to Danny is, oh, I've got you. You've finally shut up. In that battleground inside that house, Danny walked in as the very wounded, wounded soul and soldier and walked out the hero and the successor. And that's all he really needed, I think, to be told that he was okay. He was a hero because his country, his adopted country certainly didn't tell him that. His family want to tell him that but can't because he won't allow them. He had to come up with that himself. Mm. And he comes up with it in that silence. And I find his explanation of why he went to Vietnam and what happened afterwards, this catharsis that he has when he's speaking to Rose. Really interesting. Mm. He said, I told myself this is the fight and when it's over I can hold my head high and go home. But when he visited Nottingham after the war, he knew he didn't belong anymore. He tried to forget about it all, but then Rose came along. Another conscript, he says. My little girl cut open and ripped apart and stitched back up and told it's no one's fault. Be brave. Shut up. So I obeyed my orders like a good soldier. But your story is new, Rose, and so I will help you. But not here. Not like this. How do you think he will help her? I think he'll go home and talk. Maybe not in the car, maybe on the plane, you know, when everyone's asleep on the way back. That was the <clears throat> hardest monologue to write because I didn't know if I had the right to write for all these Vietnam veterans. You felt like you were speaking for all of them in that moment? Yep. That was all of them. Wow. All of the ones that I'd met in my life. I'm, I'm a very um, pedantic writer in that I have to know everything before I set pen to paper. And so I didn't just interview my dad for this story. I, even though it was really about him, I, I talked to so many Vietnam veterans and their children and their families, read so many books and biographies and studied war historians and all of that. So I really knew what I was talking about. But even knowing all of that, I had to write that monologue and go, now I'm speaking for all of them, I hope. Well, trying mm. to distill all yeah. of the stuff that you were just talking about, that extensive research yeah. into a few lines, but then into the mouth of a character. That was the thing, was putting it into the mouth of Danny and keeping him Danny, not turning him suddenly into Superman, but keeping him as Danny. Mm. And that's where the catharsis comes for both of them. And it's it's a very still moment, yeah. a very still moment on stage as well. There, Everything's kind of died down and... They'll always have that memory of the, the energy around that moment. Yeah, it's an intense yeah. kind of connection. Yeah, that's always going to be there. So yep. It's the start of their story right there, start of her story. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk about histories colliding. Mm -hmm. There's the character's personal history, their familial bonds, and then the social and political history that they've all lived through. It's tense at times, but the tension is broken by moments of purity Rose stands apart from the present and remembers a day from her childhood out crayfishing with Danny. 
And these flashbacks are not simple or free from pain, but they are set apart from the uneasiness playing out in Brian's living room. How do you see these flashbacks amidst the unfolding drama in Nottingham? The flashbacks are a metaphor for their Rose and Danny's entire relationship. They are out on a beautiful turquoise ocean. The ocean turns very rough. They don't know what the hell is going to pop out of that sea. They don't know the violence that could happen and violence that does happen on that ocean. And ultimately it's a daughter and a father stuck out at sea with each other and not knowing the best way to turn the boat around and come back in. That's why it was important to me that the monologues built themselves with a very intense pressure so that when he beats the dog, we know what's coming. We know that we're about to have the climax in the room as well when we return to it. There's that moment when Brian says, um, I'll tell you your father's story, Rose. He's a turncoat, a deserter and a traitor. Mm-hmm. He's got no story worth telling. He's ashamed. Yeah. And Rose says it wasn't his fault. He was conscripted. He had no choice. And that yeah. kind of argument goes on. But Brian then, he provokes this shift for her into that memory of being on the boat and Danny bashing the dead dog, the neighbour's yeah. dog, Bella. Yeah. Why does she react so strongly? What what provokes that memory at that point, do you think? She's trying to convince herself that her dad is a hero because he is her hero at the start of the play. He's this silent hero. Yeah. He's like the Clark Kent and she wants to take his glasses off. Please just let me take your glasses off. And I think the Bella story comes from her knowing that he's not the hero, that he's actually this aggressive, violent, fucked up guy that she saw stab a dog, stab it and stab it and stab it and stab it and stab it until it sunk under the water. And that's not heroic. It's sad and weird and pathetic. Mm. And she saw that. And I think that's just some one thing she's seen in her whole life. Yeah. And it's like why be with that strange man that did that on that ocean that time? Yeah. Why spend the rest of my life examining that man when, as Brian says, you could be examining me. Mm. I'm much more interesting. I'll give yeah. you stories. I'll be your hero. That's what she wants. Danny also has a flashback before Rose as a boy in Nottingham. That's where the play starts. Yeah. And Rose narrates that. So in a way, you kind of connect her to him there too. And he's been chased by a policeman after stealing cigarettes. Now he dangles from barbed wire, which has weaved a violent gash through his hand and around his fingers. Mm -hmm. What did you want this scene to set up for audiences? scars. (laughs) I wanted Danny to have a a really awful scar that Rose is intrigued by. It's interesting that you use the word flashback because in my head, and a lot of people question this too, where does that fit, that story? But for me, that's what Rose starts writing when she gets back. Right. That's her, that's the start of her book. Right. Yeah. And Brian tells her to start it there. Yeah, he does. It's right. He says it's a good violent start. It will bring people in. All the flashbacks converge at the end of the play. Danny disentangles himself from the barbed wires, Mm -hmm. a psychological breakthrough. And Rose remembers the day that she realised that they were both scarred. I just wanted to talk to you about what they do for one another because we've talked about how they're separated, but I actually think they're crutches for each other as well. Yeah. The thing that they have to learn is that they are positive crutches for each other, that they're not enabling each other. The image of them holding hands in there and their scars being crushed together with blood is obviously a very clear metaphor, but it's to show that they always will be father and daughter. They always will be entwined with with each other. They love one another 
with every single ounce of their being. I thought it was so sweet as well because it's almost like blood brothers. Yeah, they're blood brothers as they are soldiers. They've bled together mm. in two very different ways, but they have bled together. So I, I like that that sort of has left an effect on the audience that that final image is, it induces hope. That was my main thing about the play was that we are left with a great sense of hope and justice and that these two have a future together won't necessarily be a happy future, but it'll be filled with conversation and dialogue and understanding and empathy for each other. Mm. Yeah. You've said your family were initially very scared to Mm. see the Belvoir production, but seeing it made them feel they'd learnt something about themselves. Mm. How has seeing their real life story, all of these people, including yourself, I would say, how has it helped to heal these people or what they've been through, but also how they go on from here? Well, everyone's really different, but I know a lot of Vietnam veterans' kids that went from not speaking to their fathers, had ostracised themselves from their fathers, to after seeing the show, calling them Mm. or visiting them and not necessarily having to tell them about the play, but just knowing that there was a story there and to be respectful of that Mm. and um, to encourage them to speak but not force them to. Vietnam veterans, they seem to learn that they have to share their story, that we're entitled to it as their children and and that it might assist the path between family members. And that's the lesson of the play is we need to have that dialogue, we need to communicate and we need to instil hope in one another through our communication. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you. It's been really great to talk to you. Thanks for the questions. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This episode was recorded in Sydney. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Corbett.